Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a rainy autumn day here in the capital is James Ricks. James is the co-founder and CEO of Cloudify Global, a company which offers face-to-face marketing services, graphic and digital design, social media and digital marketing and events and student and youth marketing services. Um, James, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on today's programme. It's my absolute pleasure. I feel honoured to be here. It's a real pleasure for us welcoming you onto the airways with us as well. Um, normally at this point in the show, we dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate that we start there because it's proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But to what extent has it affected you and your operations? Um, you know, I, I mean, honestly, uh, uh, in March, uh, you know, having a, my background originally was events, um, in the nightlife industry, um, specifically in festivals and, um, and then experiential and activation marketing on behalf of brands. You know, that's my first two companies and, um, they were my primary businesses. And, um, you know, we were basically shut down overnight, um, which was uh, a bit of a heart in mouth moment, I think, um, at that point. And, um, I've been very fortunate that I um, made the decision uh, about 18 months ago to move into sort of the digital design world in quite a, um, you know, proactive manner um, as uh, events very much moved into the digital marketing scene. So us doing it on behalf of brands made a lot of sense. Um, so uh, that has been my, my saving grace. But, you know, I can sit here and tell you now that we lost probably £60,000 a week in revenue almost on a light switch, you know? Um, so it was, uh, uh quite, uh, uh, sort of, uh, you know, heart in mouth moment is probably the best way I can describe it. You know, uh, to be quite honest with you, we, we really had mm. to start thinking about what the future was going to look like at that point. And, you know, I was very concerned that my life's work was, was, uh, was, was going to be lost. I can sit here today and say that's not going to be the case, but, um, at that time, you know, that was what I, I was worried about, you know? And even though, of course, it's been quite a concerning time for you, is there anything that you can look back on over the last few months and say that actually in my leadership capacity, I've learned from this experience of crisis management, if we call it that? Yeah, I I think, you know, I always say, having my experience of travel and stuff as well, the toughest situations are often your best lessons. Mm. And we have definitely um, got some huge lessons uh, out of this. Um, and I, you know, I have to praise my my team in my company so much as they really clubbed together and and put their heads together as well and and went above and beyond to sort of help keep the business together. And as a result, you know, Crowdify, um, the digital marketing side, um, building websites, there's lots of entrepreneurs have sort of um, swiveled on a on a on a on a, a flipped themselves over on a coin, so to speak, 
and have put themselves in a position where they're creating new businesses or going direct to customer because they're not selling via shops anymore. And that's created a whole new e-commerce type opportunity. And if you're in a position like I'm in, where you have an understanding of digital marketing and building out digital campaigns and stuff like that, you know, then it's a good place to be. So um, we're very fortunate to be able to say today that, that we are um, able to survive come what may, you know. That's certainly encouraging uh, to hear uh, for sure, because um, it is a very worrying time for uh, businesses and um, with everything that is still going on. We've certainly not navigated the uh, the storm as of yet. Um, and right. uh, of course, we talked about some of the things that you've learned from uh, this experience. I suppose it's been very much um, a trial and error and learning process ever since you started in business, having started in the event sector so young at the age of 16. I think I'm right in saying, James, do correct That's me right. if I'm yeah. wrong on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that fundamentally is what leadership is all about, isn't it? It is about sort of having learning curves and um, sort of experiencing them as they come, embracing them and getting one or two things wrong along the way. It's an inevitability, but it is something that you have to take as a positive as well to sort of get better and improve. I 100% agree. And I think um, in these circumstances, I've certainly realized there's opportunities, work from home opportunities that I hadn't looked at before. I've been running a flexible office you know, with start times from 7 a.m. to 11 a.m., which actually I really like. And I think that I'm going to continue to do that when we come out of the pandemic, um, which also has flexible finish times. So it means the staff don't have to travel around rush hour. Um, I also have work from home Fridays, which again, at this point, I think I'm going to keep going forward um, because I think it keeps everyone brushed up on their work from home skills. Um, we've we've used different types of software to what we were using before. We've yeah we've um, and uh, we've, we've you know we've we've, we've 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 changed quite a lot of things in a in a quite a short period of time, I guess. Um, uh, really, that maybe we wouldn't have done before, you know. Exactly. Businesses have had to uh, change pretty much overnight in some cases. And one of the major changes that we've seen over this period of time has been the shift toward doing more things remotely, taking people out of offices and um, working from home, leading from a distance. That's all been something that business leaders have had to adapt to. Um, How has that been um, for sort of you? Have you found it quite an easy transition toward leading from a distance in that way? Um, I did. Um, and we, we, we were very, we very quickly got up. We, we used Teams, um, Microsoft Teams. Mm. Um, and we, we suddenly got to know Microsoft Teams very well. I mean, I'm a dyslexic entrepreneur as well. So anything written and stuff for me tends to be more of a challenge than, than, than the average Joe say. So I sort of, um, had to get my head around Teams quite quickly. And we got on Teams calls and we started managing all our clients through Teams and, and using other bits of software as well. And that worked really, really well for us. Um, I will say that um, as we've sort of started to come back to the office, I do think working from an office as a team is better than working everybody from home in our circumstances. And I do believe that is because often we have creative problems or we have a solution to find on behalf of a client with a creative marketing campaign. And many heads make great ideas sometimes, you know, um, Mm. or rule out the bad ones quite quickly, you know. Um, and I think that's very hard to do over a video call. When you're in a room together and you can discuss the client's problem or the, 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 the issue around a marketing campaign and come up with a new strategy, and you've got your SEO guy and your paid ads guy, Google ads guy, and your Facebook ads guy, and your, your, uh, your, your, uh, your, your social media 
uh, influencers person all in the room together, you tend to be able to come up with a solution, you know, mm. in 20 or 30 minutes instead of having to have eight phone calls, you know? Um, so I do think there is some power to being together in a room, you know? I would agree with that, certainly. While technology can go quite far, it can only go so far in alleviating the issues of not being able to have that face-to-face contact. And that is something that we have taken for granted, I think, certainly prior to the uh, the pandemic. And with that in mind, and with there also being mental health and well-being arguments for sort of both sides, can you see the conventional office workplace ever returning in vogue? Or do you think working from home will be the way of things in the future? Could be well that we might see a hybrid of the two in um, once them all of this does blow over yeah I, I think you'll see more of a hybrid of the two um i think that you i'm, I'm definitely more open to um you know from having a work from home sort of friday as, as a general ongoing thing for all of my team um and i'm certainly more open to uh using uh having roles within the business i mean i've, I've had one for quite a while actually before the pandemic even, that was work from home. Um, and uh, I like to make use of, um, of the, what I call the, uh, the, uh, the mum and dads who are highly skilled, um, but at the same time look after their children. Um, so therefore can't take a full-time job. I tend to find them a, a very highly skilled workforce that struggle to find work. And I'd like to think that I'll be able to find positions for them within the business where they can work from, say, 10 till 2.30 um, from home, you know? Um, because mm-hmm. it saves them that traveling time. And that time for them is a really important time if they can save that hour a day and, and be at their desk instead. Um, that, that adds up to be a lot of extra revenue for them and, um, and, and input for me. So I definitely think going forward, there'll be opportunities like that. You know? Mm, absolutely and uh, thinking about opportunities actually um, there are quite a lot of young people out there who are probably looking on what um, at the COVID-19 impact on the economy and um, what it's doing to their employment prospects and as somebody of course who is a successful entrepreneur who started their career early on and has made it um, quite well in business what message would you have to give those sort of disheartened young people to really get them to pick up their heads at a time like this and start on that road to success? I would say from every difficult situation comes many great ideas and people are often put into a position where they maybe create a business where they wouldn't ordinarily create it. Some out of necessity, some out of, um, well, this is my opportunity because I'm sitting at home for six months, you know? Um, so there's going to be lots of opportunity, I think, in the next, you know, 12, let's say 12 to 24 months after we've got the uh, the coronavirus under control, there'll be a lot of entrepreneurial opportunity. There'll be a lot of businesses growing um, and lots of uh, new opportunities off the back of that. Do you call it a disaster? I don't know what you would call it. And if you look back historically at economies and, and business in general, all of our generations have had some sort of disaster. My, my father's era was the big um, a recession in the in late 80s, early 90s, I think it was. Um, you know, before that, my grandfather was was around just after the war, and property prices were very different, and and things were very different back then. So I I always think there is, generally speaking, and I am generalising, in each generation, there's going to be big changes. Even within a 10 year period, there seems to be big changes, and with those changes comes lots of opportunities. So. I really would encourage people to look at this year or even if it's last ever two years, look at it as just 1% or 2% of their opportunity and really think about the big picture, which is, you know, if you're going to be 
100 years old, then 98% of your opportunities still exist. And, and just sort of manage this situation as best you can and look for those opportunities that are coming out of this. I mean, I've seen some phenomenal businesses coming out of this mm. that are doing really well um, because they've pivoted and come up with ideas and food delivery businesses and educational businesses and fitness businesses and all kinds of businesses that are doing things from home, which, you know, you would never have thought about doing, you know, a year ago. And that on its own goes to show you how fast things can move and change. Mm. And you're very right. There is always opportunity that comes out of times of crisis like this. And um, one perfect example of that as well is um, one of the businesses that you helped start, of course, I promote a software started back in 2008. We're right at the heart of an economic uh, crisis back then as well. And that went on to do quite well for itself, too. Yeah, it did indeed. Um, in fact, we still use that ticketing technology today. And, you know, I probably wouldn't still own the events company that, that I own if it hadn't been from that software, which we which I created during that period. Um, so, uh, so yeah, like I said, opportunities do come out of these types of crisis situations. They certainly do. And thinking about the uh, the future now and what opportunities might lie on the horizon, just before we do wrap things up on the show today, because I'm conscious that we are running short of time. Uh, we know in the sort of wider scheme of things, we'll be living under these restrictions, the new normal, as they call it, until probably the end of the winter and into the spring. And hopefully by that point in time, we might have a working vaccine in place. We might not. Let's just keep our fingers crossed that we do. And in that event, we might start to be able to sort of leave the challenge of COVID-19 behind forever, while then starting to look at the long-term future and shaking off the COVID hangover. But over that period of time, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve over at Cloudify? And where do you see yourselves being this time in a year come what? May. Um, I've, I've always been in love with and really enjoy growing companies. Um, and so Crowdify for me is a way to take my really sharpened marketing skills and, and team that I've built really for my own selfish needs in the early days when I had my, when I still have my events company and take those to um, startups. Um, and more renowned brands and um, be able to deliver them amazing marketing campaigns. And these days, they're all results-driven off of the back of um, technology on social media and websites and everything else and deliver that to sort of pinpoint accuracy and watch these businesses achieve their potential on behalf of the founders. And I've got such uh, respect for anybody who founds a business for the, for the drive, the ambition, the financial risk that goes into it, which always does, having been there and done it myself. And so I really love to see other people succeed with our input and deliver what has taken me 20 years to build, be able to pass that straight on to somebody who's starting out and then see results quickly. I, I don't think I'll ever get bored of that. So I've got one rule in business, which is I do things I like with people I like. And um, that'll be something that I stick to um, uh, uh, moving forward, you know. It sounds like there's plenty to get your teeth stuck into over the course of the uh, the next few months to really make that vision a reality, James. And I think we'll certainly be keeping a close eye on how things um, are coming along in that respect. In fact, I actually think it would be wonderful to welcome you back onto our programme at some point in the next year, just to see how all of that is starting to bear fruit. Yeah, I'd love that. And I, I do feel like this, this uh, crisis has given me time to focus on what will be the next 10 years of my business career. Um, in the form of really focusing around Crowdify and, and growing that business. And it probably would have taken me a little bit longer to achieve what we would achieve 
if I was still running, you know, the other two very mm. busy companies as well, you know. Because this is the thing, isn't it? It has been a significant period of self-reflection for all of us. And we can really use that for the benefit of humankind going forwards. Because what we have seen during this time is an unprecedented amount of businesses and business leaders collaborating together, communicating, recognising that they're all in the same boat. And that's no more sort of personified by how... um, the big pharmaceutical companies in pursuit of the uh, of a vaccine, of course, have been sharing their own intellectual property with each other as well and helping remove the bureaucracy to make it easier for a vaccine to go to market. So that is just one example. And we can take an awful lot from all of this into the future for the benefit of business and for the benefit of humankind, can't we? Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, and that's one of the reasons that Crowdify has the startup lab is because we're looking every now and again for those businesses that, you know, look like they're going to be phenomenal, that we know we can make a huge impact in very quickly. That might be because we're London's biggest student event promoter. And so we have the youth database, which that particular business needs. And so we created the startup lab. So if they're not got the cash there, we can still work with them for a small equity share in the business and help grow them and help them achieve their dreams. You know, it's not just about getting paid and getting out, you know. That's exactly right. James, I have to say, it's been such a pleasure welcoming you onto the programme this afternoon. And most importantly, as well, until we do hopefully get to speak again in future, do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on. And that goes for everybody associated with Cloudify Global, because we're certainly not quite out of the woods with this COVID situation yet. But let's keep our fingers crossed that we won't be stuck in this rut for too much longer. Thank you very much. And the same to you guys. I wish you all the best. I'd also like to extend that message to everybody tuning into the podcast today. Please do continue to stay well, look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it makes such a difference in saving lives. Um, It was a pleasure for me to welcome Cloudify Global CEO James Ricks onto today's programme. Coming up next on the show today, we're going to be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Now, during his professional football career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, among other clubs. But he remains most well-known, of course, for the fact that he remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup competition. That, of course, came after his famous treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. So Jeff will be coming on to the programme to look back at some of the highlights of his career, discussing the importance of robust leadership throughout, as well as offering a message of thanks to our wonderful NHS, who have been doing all that they can during this very trying time that is coming up next and now ladies and gentlemen without further ado we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in sir jeff hurst who joins us on the program today um sir jeff good morning good morning how are you very good thank you it certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it isn't it it is the weather's pretty good at the moment i hope may, may it last Absolutely. Thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, 
I've asked that question. I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with, with this record, and goodness me, that's how it's nearly sixty years, I guess. If, if uh, we're looking at two thousand and twenty-two, no, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, uh, tremendous goal scorer, and if anybody, I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved. Uh, it would be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with with Spurs in England. So absolutely, and I want England to do well. I mean, I, I'm want England to be successful. I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I will not want to bury it. And I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England, England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually mm. and that's how I felt about my uh, my achievements about the team being successful whether I got two or three in one sense is, is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial but it's about the team winning it's all about the team mm. Exactly consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership which is of course what the Leaders Council is all about recognising that and promoting that for the future but if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966 when you were bearing down on goal I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time, and there's quite a bit of a joke about that, but there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand, we all know what happened, the ball nestled in the top corner, England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup, but you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people, um, I, I've, I, I, I recall exactly what's amazing, I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, if the game's nearly finished, I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans Tilkowski, the German keeper, by that time, surely the game has got to be over. But as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss it and it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, making this, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life an element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about 
COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service. And we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts. And we're hanging out thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what, what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, whether there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital in uh, important in a sense to have a, a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on. And, and also, into what was also for me fantastic, all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same you you union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identify then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest viewing, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony. Um, for the NHS, fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coming to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, uh, clever enough, technically good enough to, to be around to be a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, he's the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, 
or Premier League as it is today, it's it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined um, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined, moving from one to the other, uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was, I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a, you've got a, a coach, it's a team coach, who's a teacher effectively, and you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager, who manages people, may not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who's then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and um, all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, people in my life, in my, in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh, yes, I think, it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach or what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, that was a really stupid thing to do and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes. But it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continues making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm, completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during Absolutely. your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier, even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. 
you um, in our road in Greenway, as it was called in Chelmsford, we, that three or four lads, <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road, um, with a round, with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway, A, because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B, because there weren't as many cars, no, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so it's always a three of play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in. Uh, flying, you know, and making balsa wood gliders, and uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court, and uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street, and uh, we were actually. But that that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the. the the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We lived, we lived, I was born in Ashton on the line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was uh, had a big influence, going back to that third goal in the World Cup in many years in the back garden and when we moved on to a, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot and so I at that time and even today it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed and I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton even Jack Charlton his brother didn't know which was his best foot he, he was fantastic but I was pretty pretty um, um Two-footed, and a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, Although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. 
So that's that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about. I, I kind of put it between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then, or centre-half at school. Um, he said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game, and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had one first class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game for me. I filled a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, the V Lancashire up. Up in their territory, but that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done with some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games for those two or three years. Extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23 24 games no 27 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a midfield player so um, quite changed dramatically um, that was 60 62 63 season the three years before the World Cup and when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, and not just tipping balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you could possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Mac, for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, 
bench is one of the world class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves doesn't play with a world class player in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue was a world class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup some world class players and Banksy was up there not with the best the best for me and another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flat. It was a, a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that had uh, come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see in myself. I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. My discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across. The, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold. Mm. Without any shadow of a doubt, he, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you'd been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham that we, it was a great time at the club and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years and it was a fantastic time for that particular club they won of course the uh, the the League Cup before I went there mm. sadly they knocked us out in the semi-final so 
that was a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played eight actually in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on the goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was, uh, wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year, but I've made very little contribution to that success that I've had. So, um, yes, it, uh, the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it as long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters. And my wife, thank you, was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a... I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was, and uh, enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New, new kitchen. <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend, as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's... I think the that kind of uh, whatever the word, correct word is I don't know being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe uh, maybe longer maybe in longer not some sort of immediately after you finish playing but in the long term when um, uh, and I always joke when people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend and, and I always joke and say you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70 and I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not not certainly, um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looks at me. When I was in business, as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up to, I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has, has natural characteristics. You can learn about management or management courses, but there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if you're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, when you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to 
they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Mm, ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela in fact that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways and I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed yes it is very good good advice yes so Jeff thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the program this morning it's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life career and leadership and it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the program in future to discuss further pleasure thank you enjoy, enjoy being part of the program thank you Likewise, thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.